Welcome to My Cousin Jane, a podcast about Jane Austen and her works, with your host, Lee Phelan. Welcome back to another episode of My Cousin Jane. Each week, we look at the behind-the-scenes featurettes or deleted scenes of a particular chapter in Jane Austen's books. And this week, we're going to be talking about Pride and Prejudice, Chapter 8. Today's episode will be a bit longer than normal because there is a lot that happens in Chapter 8. And this may be the closest to a controversial episode we get, unless we do an episode on the relative merits of Colin Firth versus Matthew McFadden as Mr. Darcy. I believe that the Netherfield chapters, chapters 8 through 12, are some of the most important in the novel, second only to the chapters where Elizabeth visits Rosings later in the book. In this chapter, we have Jane and Elizabeth at Netherfield, along with Mr. Bingley and his sisters, her sister's husband, Mr. Hurst, and Mr. Darcy. Most of the chapters spent in mild banter about various topics, ranging from Elizabeth and her family to what it means to be truly accomplished— But Elizabeth's primary concern is Jane's health, which by the end of the chapter is not improving. Let's begin with a mild exchange about food between Elizabeth and Mr. Hurst. As always, our audio clips come courtesy of Karen Savage and LibriVox.org. Their brother, indeed, was the only one of the party whom she could regard with any complacency. His anxiety for Jane was evident, and his attentions to herself most pleasing, and they prevented her feeling herself so much an intruder as she believed she was considered by the others. She had very little notice from any but him. Miss Bingley was engrossed by Mr. Darcy, her sister scarcely less so, and as for Mr. Hurst, by whom Elizabeth sat, he was an indolent man who lived only to eat, drink, and play at cards, who, when he found her to prefer a plain dish to a ragout, had nothing to say to her. There's a lot of history behind this seemingly innocent comment about plain dishes versus ragout. First, a ragout, R-A-G-O-U-T, or sometimes R-A-G-O-O, is different than a ragout, R-A-G-U, which is an Italian dish. Traditionally, British dinners were not very spicy or very ornamental. This was especially true of the classic Sunday staple roast beef, which was typically served with roasted vegetables, Yorkshire pudding, and gravy. However, in the late 1700s, French cuisine became extremely fashionable, so much so that a sign of wealth in the aristocracy was to employ French cook. Mrs. Bennett comments about this later in the book, when she supposes that Mr. Darcy must have at least two or three French cooks in his employ. One of the trends in French cuisine was the ragout, R-A-G-O-U-T, a method of slow cooking stewed meats and vegetables with a variety of spices and other additions, such as mushrooms, truffles, anchovies, and oysters. One of the most popular English cookbooks of the time, The Complete Housewife, has a recipe for how to, quote, ragout a breast of veal. It says to, quote, lard your breast of veal with bacon, then half boil it in some water and salt, whole pepper, and a bunch of sweet herbs. Then take it out and dust it with some grated bread, sweet herbs, and fennel, and grated nutmeg and salt all mixed together. Then broil it on both sides and make a sauce of anchovies and gravy thickened with butter, then garnish with pickles. In 1731, The English satirical writer and playwright named Henry Fielding wrote a song called The Roast Beef of Old England that attributes English military prowess to the plain roast beef flavored by the Englishman. It then laments that the ragouts of France were corrupting the country. The song became so famous that it was sung during the opening and sometimes closing of new plays in England, and to this day, the Royal Artillery and the Royal Navy play this song at dinners. Even the United States Marine Corps plays this tune during ceremonial mess dinners. 
Here's an excerpt from the song performed by Jerry Bryant in The Starboard Mess. When mighty roast beef was the Englishman's food, it ennobled our veins and enriched our blood. Our soldiers are brave and our courtiers were good. Oh, the roast beef of old England and old English roast beef. But since we have learned from all vapor in France to eat the ragouts as well as to dance, we are fed up with nothing but vain complaisance. Oh, the roast beef of old England and old English roast beef. So Elizabeth, in preferring a plain dish to a ragu, is perhaps a nod to the fact that for many of the English, especially those with family in the Royal Navy like Austin, it was more than a matter of personal taste. It was a matter of patriotism. Speaking of family connections, let's listen to an excerpt of Miss Bingley and Mrs. Hurst talking about those of the Bennett family. I have an excessive regard for Miss Jane Bennett. She is really a very sweet girl, and I wish with all my heart she were well settled. But with such a father and mother and such low connections, I am afraid there is no chance of it. I think I have heard you say that their uncle is an attorney on Meryton. Yes, and they have another who lives somewhere near Cheapside. That is capital, added her sister, and they both laughed heartily. If they had uncles enough to fill all Cheapside, cried Bingley, it would not make them one jot less agreeable. But it must very materially lessen their chance of marrying men of any consideration in the world, replied Darcy. To this speech Bingley made no answer, but his sisters gave it their hearty assent, and indulged their mirth for some time at the expense of their dear friend's vulgar relations. Despite what you might infer from the name Cheapside and Miss Bingley's reaction to it, Cheapside had nothing to do with the slums or being cheap. The name comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word that means market street. Charles Dickens wrote in 1879 about Cheapside, calling it the greatest thoroughfare in the city of London. It was a center of shopping and trade in the city. As we know from other places in the novel, the uncle referred to here, Mr. Gardiner, was a tradesman living on Gracechurch Street, which is about a 10-minute walk from Cheapside. As a tradesman, living near Cheapside would be advantageous. But the Bingley sisters and Mr. Darcy consider family who work as tradesmen or as attorneys as a strike against the Bennets socially. Though again, the irony here is that the Bingley fortune was in fact earned through trade just one or two generations prior. Speaking of the work of generations, let's now transition to a brief discussion of books, reading, and family libraries. On entering the drawing room, she found the whole party at Lou and was immediately invited to join them. But suspecting them to be playing high, she declined it, and making her sister the excuse, said she would amuse herself for the short time she could stay below with a book. Mr. Hurst looks at her with astonishment. "'Do you prefer reading to cards?' said he. "'That is rather singular.' "'Miss Eliza Bennet,' said Miss Bingley, "'despises cards. She is a great reader, and has no pleasure in anything else.' "'I deserve neither such praise nor such censure,' cried Elizabeth. "'I am not a great reader, and I have pleasure in many things.' "'In nursing your sister, I am sure you have pleasure,' said Bingley, "'and I hope it will soon be increased by seeing her quite well.' Elizabeth thanked him from her heart, and then walked towards the table where a few books were lying. He immediately offered to fetch her others, all that his library afforded. "'And I wish my collection were larger for your benefit and my own credit, "'but I am an idle fellow, and though I have not many, I have more than I have ever looked into.' Elizabeth assured him that she could suit herself perfectly with those in the room. "'I am astonished,' said Miss Bingley, "'that my father should have left so small a collection of books. "'What a delightful library you have at Pemberley, Mr. Darcy!' 
It ought to be good, he replied. It has been the work of many generations. And then you have added so many to it yourself. You are always buying books. I cannot comprehend the neglect of a family library in such days as these. First, just a brief mention about the game the group is playing when Elizabeth walks in. According to David Parlett, author of A History of Card Games, Lou, also known as Lanterloo, was a trick-taking game similar to Whist, which, for the sake of time, we'll talk about in detail next week. And while there were several variations, there were two main ways to handle the betting. In the first, sometimes called Limited Lou, the amount of money contributed to the pool during play was small and fixed. But in the second version, Unlimited Lou, the amounts increased as play went on, sometimes leading to astronomical wins and losses, and even ruined fortunes in some cases. Elizabeth suspects they are playing high, and therefore are likely playing unlimited loo, so she opts for a book instead. Now Elizabeth choosing a book instead of cards is really interesting as well, because of the later comment that Miss Bingley makes and Elizabeth's response to it. Mr. Hurst says, do you prefer reading to cards? That is rather singular. Miss Bingley, remember, she says, Miss Eliza Bennett despises cards. She's a great reader and has no pleasure in anything else. And then Elizabeth's response, I deserve neither such praise nor such censure. I'm not a great reader, and I have pleasure in many things. So while on the surface, this exchange just seems like some mild banter and a veiled insult, but actually there's something a lot deeper here. So in the 1750s, a group calling themselves the Blue Stocking Society was formed by a group of women for the purpose of increasing the literary education of women. And contrary to what you might think from this, it wasn't just a women's club. One of its purposes was the mutual dialogue on intellectual matters between men and women. And several prominent men also became members, including Sir Edmund Burke. Now, there's quite a bit of dispute about the origins of the name amongst historians. Some people believe that all of the members wore blue stockings. Other people point to a specific invitation given to an eccentric botanist to never mind if he couldn't afford nice clothes when attending the meeting, but to just come in his blue worsted stockings instead. Regardless of where the name came from, the group's popularity slowly waned throughout the 1700s, partially because by the early 1800s, women had much better educational opportunities than they'd had previously. One of the founders of the group, Elizabeth Montague, felt specifically that it was better for women to meet and discuss literary matters rather than sit around and play at cards. So it's interesting that Elizabeth Bennett, sharing the same name as Elizabeth Montague, also chooses a book over cards and that Miss Bingley remarks on this. Because even though a number of prominent women were supportive of the group, the term blue stocking came to be a somewhat derogatory term that was applied to women that cared more about education and literature than they did about fashion. You might remember Mrs. Gibson referring to Molly as a blue stocking in Wives and Daughters, and Molly being quite embarrassed by this. This puts Elizabeth's response of deserving, quote, neither such praise nor such censure in an interesting light. Now let's listen to one more clip about accomplishments. It is amazing to me, said Bingley, how young ladies can have patience to be so very accomplished as they all are. All young ladies accomplished? My dear Charles, what do you mean? Yes, all of them, I think. They all paint tables, cover screens, and net purses. I scarcely know anyone who cannot do all this, and I am sure I never heard a young lady spoken of for the first time without being informed that she was very accomplished. Your list of the common extent of accomplishments, said Darcy, has too much truth. The word is applied to many a woman who deserves it no otherwise than by netting a purse or covering a screen. But I am very far from agreeing with you in your estimation of ladies in general. I cannot boast of knowing more than half a dozen in the whole range of my acquaintance that are really accomplished. 
"'Nor I, I am sure,' said Miss Bingley. "'Then,' observed Elizabeth, "'you must comprehend a great deal in your idea of an accomplished woman.' "'Yes, I do comprehend a great deal in it.' "'Oh, certainly,' cried his faithful assistant. "'No one can be really esteemed accomplished who does not greatly surpass what is usually met with. A woman must have a thorough knowledge of music, singing, drawing, dancing, and the modern languages, to deserve the word. And besides all this, she must possess a certain something in her air and manner of walking, the tone of her voice, her address and expressions, or the word will be but half deserved.' "'All this she must possess,' added Darcy, "'and to all this she must yet add something more substantial "'in the improvement of her mind by extensive reading. "'I am no longer surprised at your knowing only six accomplished women. "'I rather wonder now at your knowing any. "'Are you so severe upon your own sex as to doubt the possibility of all this? "'I never saw such a woman. "'I never saw such capacity and taste and application and elegance, as you describe, united.' Mrs. Hurst and Miss Bingley both cried out against the injustice of her implied doubt, and both were protesting that they knew many women who answered this description, when Mr. Hurst called them to order with bitter complaints of their inattention to what was going forward. As all conversation was thereby at an end, Elizabeth soon afterwards left the room. During the late 1700s and early 1800s, a woman named Hannah Moore was a prominent writer on education, morality, and religion— who had a lot to say on the education of women in particular. Many critics think that the contrast in the effects of the difference of education and upbringing between Fanny Price and the Bertram sisters was a not-so-subtle nod to Moore's writings. But even here in Pride and Prejudice, we see it in how Miss Bingley and Elizabeth discuss female accomplishments. Miss Bingley's list of traits possessed by a, quote, truly accomplished woman— is exactly what most upper-class and upwardly mobile young women in the middle class were being taught in the late 1700s. Moore wrote about this type of education in her 1799 book, Strictures on the Modern System of Female Education, saying, quote, Not a few of the evils of the present day arise from a new and perverted application of terms. Among these, perhaps, there is not one more abused, misunderstood, or misapplied than the term accomplishments. Moore went on to write that the emphasis on the superfluous and ornamental skills taught to so many young women made them ill-suited to contribute meaningfully to society. Though Moore was by no means what we would think of as a modern feminist, she did advocate that in marriage, women should be equal partners with their husbands rather than merely ornamentation. She said, quote, When a man of sense comes to marry, it is a companion whom he wants and not an artist. It is not merely a creature who can paint and play and dress and dance. It is a being who can comfort and counsel him, one who can reason and reflect and feel and judge and act and discourse and discriminate, one who can assist him in his affairs, lighten his cares, soothe his sorrows, purify his joys, strengthen his principles, and educate his children. Now, whether or not you agree with this prescription for domestic bliss, there is no denying that it had a strong influence on society in the late 1700s and early 1800s, including on Jane Austen, and especially in her treatment of Mansfield Park. While many modern interpretations of Austen's work characterize her as a feminist, if she was a feminist, it's important to weigh that in the light of what she herself would have considered feminism, particularly in relation to the views of her contemporaries like Elizabeth Montague of the Blue Stocking Society and Heather Moore, who is a wildly influential writer. One other note about Austen and Moore is that the latter, in an attempt to further spread her teachings, wrote a novel called Coleb's In Search of a Wife, which tells the story of a man trying to find a wife that meets the high moral standards of his mother. 
It was a huge success at the time, primarily because it was seen as more of a religious work than as a novel, which helped more conservatively-minded people feel good about reading it and sharing it with their friends, because a lot of people thought that novels were always of ill repute. Unfortunately, it wasn't actually that great of a story, due mainly to the fact that Moore was trying very hard to drive home some specific religious points rather than write an entertaining story. Moore herself wrote in the preface to the book, quote, I fear the novel reader will reject it as dull. This turned out to be prophetic, because while we know that Jane Austen did like and agree with much of what Moore wrote, she did not care at all for this novel, mostly because of how dull and heavy-handed of a novel it was. Her sister Cassandra wrote to her about it, telling her about the book and how much she liked it, but Jane simply replied, quote, My disinclination for it before was affected, but now it is real. Well, that wraps up this episode of My Cousin Jane. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to help support the show, please head over to leefalencom slash mycousinjane, sign up for our newsletter, or click on the little donate button. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.